You're listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. To learn more about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Adam Mutasib. Some of you are like, what the heck did you bring me to? I remember 10 years ago, one of the most cringeworthy moments I've ever seen in my life was during the VMAs, Video Music Awards, Taylor Swift, not, you know, pop icon Taylor Swift, like 16-year-old junior in high school country artist Taylor Swift, won the award for Best Video, and she walks on stage at the VMAs, and what happens? Kanye. Kanye. You know, Kanye is a genius, but he's so unpredictable. Shout out Donda coming out August 6th. I'm excited. If any of you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. Anyway, Kanye comes on stage and he says, Beyonce had one of the best videos of all time. Taylor should not have won this award. Beyonce deserved this award. And there was a drop mic and awkward silence for a good 10, 15 seconds. Do you remember this scene? And what do you do after something that cringeworthy happens? Taylor Swift didn't know what to say. She didn't even want the award. It was so awkward. And I feel a little bit like Taylor Swift this morning. Kanye has walked in, said something so culturally offensive, and I have to talk after it. And the good news though for us this morning is that Though Kanye West calls himself a god, he ain't one, and the real God has written his word, and it's perfect, and it's good, and it's useful, and it teaches us how to live godly lives. And so we're going to trust it this morning. You know, it's a section of scriptures like this, why a lot of churches don't go verse by verse through books of the Bible and letting God speak for himself, because you have to deal with passages like this. But listen, we believe God's word stands on its own, so we're going to teach it. So just look at some of these statements that were just read. Women should not themselves with braided hair or gold or pearls. The women are like slowly unbraiding their hair and taking off their jewelry. (laughs) Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority. Women are saved through childbearing. This is a landmine of culturally offensive things. You know, perhaps no text of Scripture has caused more controversy than this one. There's been more written about these few verses than any other section of the Bible. Uh, Feminist scholar Phyllis Tribal calls this a text of terror, and I see why. The famous playwright George Bernard Shaw called Paul the eternal enemy of women. And I think the reason those are the perceptions of this section of Scripture and of Paul and of the Bible is because Really, and I think the reason Christianity is often rejected is because of misunderstandings. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, we're so glad you're here. And one of the things that we've said since we started this series in 1 Timothy is that if you're going to reject Jesus, if you're going to reject the church, at least make sure that you're rejecting the real thing and not some misunderstanding. Make sure you at least know and understand what it is that you're rejecting. 
They, I think the example I used the first week is, don't say Mexican food is bad if all you've had is Taco Bell. That's a misperception of Mexican food. Now also to the Christian brothers and sisters that are here this morning, I want to give a warning to you as well. You would probably say it's wrong to reject God's word. But you know what's equally wrong? You know, in fact, what's even worse, according to God in Revelation chapter 3, is the kind of ignorant Christian who says, oh yeah, I believe the Bible because mom and dad told me it's true, but you ignore it and don't do it. And you come to texts like this and you say, hmm, just going to skip that one. That is saying God's word is not God's word. And so my hope for you this morning is that you would understand what Paul is saying and not just understand, but apply you see, at least the unbeliever has the intellectual integrity to reject it outright. My encouragement to the Christian is, if you're going to accept this, you've got to accept the whole thing. Not a buffet. Now, if you look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, which is the thesis of the entire book, Paul says he's writing this whole book to help us understand how we ought to live in the household of God. So everything Paul writes here is to teach us how we're supposed to live in God's house, in the church, and in the home. And like every household, every family, what does it need? It needs godly men and godly women. In the same way the church needs godly men and godly women. And the church needs godly men and godly women working together in harmony and unity. And so, man, there's so many tough things. I don't, I don't want to keep us here for two hours. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to split the section in half. I'm going to spend today talking about the household of God needing godly men and godly women. And then next week, we'll hit some of those really hard texts talking about, you know, the women's day through childbearing and I'm not permitted a woman to teach. I'll, I'll explain all those. So my hope today is that we learn something about what our roles as men and women look like and next week you'll come back and we'll learn uh, how we work together well in harmony for the flourishing of the church and the home. All right, let me pray and then we'll jump in. Lord Jesus, we need your help. There's so many culturally offensive things that we've just read. And, you know, honestly, God, I just don't care. I just want to teach what the Word says as it's written. So help us to understand what you've written. Help us to apply it. For the unbeliever that's here this morning, may their heart be softened to the good news of the gospel. May, them, may they throw themselves on the mercy of Christ today. And for the believer, help them to understand your Word and not just see it, but do it. We pray that our church will be full of men and women that honor you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So you know this, but we live in a society that is currently eroding away. What's that movie? Eroding. Well, you guys know what I'm talking about? Uh, no, sorry. That's, you know what I'm talking about, Adam. Sorry, that, that, that was not in my manuscript, and I don't usually go off it, and that's what happens when I do. Anyway. <laughs> eroding. Yeah, we got to remember this movie. Sorry, that was so bad. Forgive me. Let's start over. Okay. Uh, <laughs> We live in a society that is eroding, just normal eroding, eroding away at the differences between men and women. How do I... How, liar, liar, that's what it is. Liar, liar, classic. Anyway, Adam, you're supposed to keep me on track, not distract me. <laughs> um, how do I know that we're eroding away at the differences between men and women? Did you know that you can be an underage child, under 18, and get gender reassignment surgery without parental consent. In the same way you can get an abortion without mom or dad's approval, in the same way you can get condoms without mom or dad's approval, you can change your gender without your parents' approval. 
Also, you probably have seen your emails today include pronouns, signatures. You determine who you are, what your gender is. There are no longer gender-defined bathrooms often. They're more ambiguous. Even gender-defined bathrooms are considered offensive. And what th this has led to is, this is not the first time this has happened, but three weeks ago in L.A., a fully naked man was walking around a gym woman's locker room in front of little girls. Imagine being an eight-year-old girl and seeing that. All because gender is fluid. In sports, men are now competing in women's sports, as if that's fair. There's a, a man competing in the women weightlifting competition in the, in the Olympics this year. Did you know that the fastest woman competing in the Olympics for sprinting is still slower than the slowest man competing in the, in the Olympics this year? The fastest man is still slower, excuse me, the fastest woman is still slower than the slowest man. And you know what's crazy? We live in a society where that is sexist to even declare that fact. It's sexist to say that Men have a stronger bone density, more muscles, and can perform better at athletics. Here's something that's really shocking. And you're not going to believe this, but I, Google it after the service. There was a recent study done by Vice and Pew in 2020 that asked Gen Z about gender. And they found that 41% of Gen Z identifies as gender neutral. Vice in 2020 reports that 41% of gener the youngest generation refuses to identify with a specific gender. We are slowly becoming less and less gender specific and more gender ambiguous. And this has even resulted in gender reveal parties being considered offensive. You have a gender reveal party, people online will say, how dare you? How dare you? project a gender onto your child before they're able to experience the world and decide their gender on their own. In fact, uh, Raven Smith in, a, in Vogue, this article entitled, The Growing Horror of the Gender Reveal Party, she writes, honestly, who needs a gender in the year of our Lord 2020? Have we not moved beyond penis or vagina classification in the womb? You're probably not expecting those two words at church this morning. Welcome to RCC. <laughs> I can't help but be disappointed that with all this gender discourse, all this debate, all this progress, there are still people stuffing pink confetti into the tailpipe of their car. Confusion over the meaning and distinction of men and women is everywhere. John Piper says, the scholar says that the consequences of this confusion is not this utopia. It's not a free and happy harmony among gender-free persons. The consequences, rather, is more divorce, more homosexuality, more sexual abuse, more promiscuity, more social awkwardness, more emotional distress and suicide that comes with the loss of God-given identity. What Paul is going to say here in 1 Timothy chapter 2 is that in the year of our Lord 2020, as Raven Smith would say, we still need gender. Gender matters. Our XX chromosome or our XY chromosome matters to God. And they affect how we live in the home and in the church. And what's interesting is that the context the Apostle Paul is writing to is also another gender-confused society, the city of Ephesus. The, loca the location of the church Paul is 
Speaking to here, housed the temple of Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the world. And in fact, this goddess Artemis was so influential that in the book of Acts, when the Jesus followers stopped worshiping Artemis and started worshiping Jesus, there was a riot because the idol makers were losing revenue because people stopped buying their statues. Artemis had a major influence on this city. And Artemis was a female goddess known as the Lady of Ephesus. And you can see a couple of pictures of here on the screen. You have the Ephesian version, the more Eastern version, and the Greek version, Diana version of Artemis. She's sometimes presented as a naked woman covered in hundreds of breasts. And other times she's presented as this tomboy type of huntress who has a quiver and a bow, with hunting dogs by her side. And you see that this rejection of femininity with an embracement of a, of a woman who's masculine. Artemis was known to have rejected marriage, and she, in fact, at the temple of Artemis, was a female cult of priestesses who also rejected marriage, who embraced this rejection of femininity. And this is all throughout Ephesus. And we see here that this has then trickled into the church in Ephesus. 1 Timothy 4, Paul tells us that the false teachers were teaching women and men to reject marriage. And many of the and women in the church had become idle, were refusing to get married, had begun to dress inappropriately in the church, and Paul is confronting the church, capitulating to the culture. And what Paul is going to say here to us is that male and female roles were ingrained into the very fabric of creation. And to do away with the differing design given to you as a man or given to you as a woman is to fight against God's created order. In the same way you would not try to breathe underwater because water would fill up your lungs and you'd suffocate, we should not fight against God's creation in that he made us men and made us women. So my hope today and my hope for next week is to show you that this section of scripture is to show us the beauty of God's design for men and women, and how they flourish together. Now, a couple caveats I need to just drop in before we dive into the text. Number one, this just needs to be said, especially in the society we're in right now. The Bible is abundantly clear that men and women have equal value before God. Equal value. Genesis 1, male and female, he created them. In God's image, he created them. So ain't no man who's more valuable than any woman. Women do not exist to serve men. Women depict the beauty of God. We learn about God from women. So ain't no garbage about that here. Now, before we jump in, two quick hermeneutical principles. Hermeneutics is a fancy word of how to interpret scripture, how to study scripture. Principle number one that we need to know when we come to hard texts like this, and this is going to be helpful for you when you come to other verses that you're like, what the heck is this saying? Principle number one, the principle of harmony. The principle of harmony just essentially means God is not confused. God does not con contradict himself. And so when we come to really hard texts, we interpret it with texts that speak on that same issue elsewhere. So verses that we just read, women are saved through childbearing. Whoa, whoa wait a second, Paul. You've spent... Chapter after chapter, book after book, telling us that we're saved by faith alone, by grace alone, and Christ alone, not through anything we do. So how, you're saying women are saved by having kids? That seems to go against everything you've ever said. Well, that's, because, must be, that's not what it's saying. We interpret Scripture with other Scripture. They don't contradict. Second principle, the principle of history. Principle of history means that each text we read was written by an author 
through the Holy Spirit to a particular context, to a particular culture. And so we need to discern what is cultural here and temporary and what is eternal and timeless and revelatory. Let me give you some brief examples. You know how Jesus in the Gospels washes the disciples' feet and says, go do likewise? Have any of you washed any feet today? Sinners? No, no, why, why would we say that's not, that's not the case? Well, because the washing of the feet is not the point of the text. The point of the text, the point of Jesus there is to serve one another. Washing of feet is the particular cultural expression in Israel in the first century of how to do that well. Your feet are probably pretty clean. I don't need to wash your feet. So you know what I can do? I can clean your toilet. That probably aligns more with serving one another. So if anyone wants to serve me, connect with me after the service, I'd be happy to have you come clean my toilet. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> we also need to, in 2 Timothy, there's another example of this. Paul tells Timothy, bring my cloak, Timothy, when you come visit me. Is that eternal revelation for us? Does that mean that every Sunday morning we need to bring North Faces to one another? To, here, I'm, I'm, I'm obeying the Bible. No, that was the particular cultural expression of the author to that person. The principle we're trying to get at, the eternal timeless truth, is serve one another. Meet each other's needs, like Timothy did for Paul in 2 Timothy. Okay? So let's keep these two principles in mind, and they'll come in handy as we work through it this week and next week. All right. Now, the first thing that Paul says about gender, number one, is that the household of God needs godly men. It needs godly men. Look at verse 8 with me. Open up your Bibles. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. Paul says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. First thing Paul says is that in every place we need men. Men who are praying. Every place here is, is he's talking about church gatherings and homes. Whenever there's a gathering of people, we need men. Now, American society tends to believe the opposite. We need less men. But that's a pushback against the Harvey Weinstein, Homer Simpson type of oppressive, idiotic manhood that's destructive to everything around him. Of course we don't need more men if all they're doing is playing Clash of Clans or chugging beer or seeing whose fart smells the worst. The modern image of an American man is either a muscular child with beer in his sippy cup who works as little as possible so he can have as much fun as possible, or he's a narcissistic manipulator who carelessly uses and abuses women. And honestly, what do you expect when men today are catechized in the school of Hugh Hefner and The, the Hangover? This is what they were taught, so it's what they do. And the reason this is so depressing is because if you look at all the sociological studies in society, especially American society, almost all of society's deep issues root back to unmotivated, pleasure-dependent, commitment-phobic men. You, you want to find out what's the number one indicator that a young person will be successful. What's the number one indicator a young person will flourish in life? It's if they have a present dad. And the sad reality is that we have a lack of solid men in our society and in, our, in the churches. And Paul is saying, we need every kind of man, but not the kind of men we're talking about there. 
See, I, I would agree with feminists that if it's the world's kind of men we're talking about, then we should put women in charge of everything today. They're way more responsible. But Paul shows us here that that's not God's standard of manhood. Paul says we need men, but not just any men. We need men who look like Jesus. Men who are strong as lions and as tender as lambs. Men who are willing to lay their preferences and even their very life down to save those who are oppressed. And men who will kneel to the floor and hug a child. Paul describes that type of manhood in this text. He says we need men in every place who are prayerful, pure, and peaceable. Men, I hope you're listening. This is the standard of God for you. Number one, men who are prayerful. Look at verse 8. He says, I desire that in every place the men should pray. Paul's like, can I get a brother to pray? I want in every place men praying. You see, prayer, what it is at its core is to be weak before God. It's saying, God, I can't do this. You need to. Paul wants men who are weak before him so that they can be strong before other men. You see, if you're a Christian, you start your faith in weakness. You say, God, I'm not good enough. I'm a sinner. Jesus, you were good enough. I throw myself on your mercy. Save me by your work on the cross. I'm dependent upon you. And you sustain that same faith with that same weakness every moment of every day, walking by the Spirit with Him, saying, God, I can't be the father you're calling me to be. God, I can't be the husband you're calling me to be. God, I can't be the church member you're calling me to be. God, I can't deal with this weird person anymore. Help me! You see, accepting the gospel at its core is to acknowledge and affirm very weakness, independence. I'm not holy enough. Christ is, so I need Him. You know, I'm not strong enough to work 10 hours a day, get home, and instead of crashing on my couch, putting my feet up, and drinking a beer, and turning on ESPN, instead of turning the TV off, getting off off the couch, kneeling down, looking my kids in the eye, playing with them, putting them to bed after I give them a bath, then spending quality time with my wife, and then checking the score on the ESPN app afterwards. I am not strong enough to do that on my own. See, being a man of prayer is to be a man of weakness and to acknowledge who you are, how sinful, how broken you really are. And there are so many men today who fake strength, who refuse to acknowledge weakness, but to be a godly man is to say, I am not good enough at its very core. You see, a strong man before God is really a weak man who's honest before God. Men, good men, lead from a place of dependence, not from a place of self-sufficiency. Strong men do not need to fake strength. They can admit their weakness. You want to you tell the difference between a strong man and a weak man? Give him honest, gentle criticism. Weak men will flail around and defend and fight and abandon those who criticize them. Strong men who are secure and acknowledge, yeah, there are some broken things in me, can say, yeah, I need to grow there. And that kind of man starts with prayer. I, I mean, I guarantee you, if your prayer life is weak, it's because you already think you're strong. And if your prayer life is strong, it's because you know how weak you really are. 
God is saying we need men in every place who are prayerful, meaning who are dependent, who acknowledge their weakness. That's the first category of a godly man. Second, we need men who are pure. He says, I want men in every place praying, not just praying, but praying, lifting holy hands. That's just a beautiful sight, isn't it? Seeing a man like this, praying to God. Now, the emphasis here is not so much about posture, but about passion and purity. And men are very good at being passionate, aren't they? I went to a Ravens game a year ago, and I saw a guy jump from the top of a truck onto a plastic table. And he was like, yeah, give me a beer, you know, like, I see men who are so passionate, they'll dress up as little birds at football games. Men get excited easily. Just get them excited about, just bring up the Avengers or something like that. Like they get excited. And yet men are often so poor at being expressive in worship and in prayer. And Paul is saying here, we need men praying with expressiveness. Men, all, every man has passion about something, but that passion needs to be redirected to the right object, to the glorious object, Jesus there is a place for passion, and it's not just at the ball game. The place for passion and expressiveness is when you're standing in the presence of God. And so Paul says, men, pray with your hands lifted up. And he says, don't just pray with your hands lifted up. Pray with holy hands lifted up. Hands that are righteous, hands that are set apart, cleansed by King Jesus. Hands offered up to God in surrender. The image here is a son lifting up his hands to reach for his father. And so, men, let me just honestly ask you, what have you been doing with your hands? If you were to do what this text says, lift them up in worship to God today, would God look in your hands and say, those are holy hands? Where have your hands been? What have your hands been doing? And are they pleasing in the sight of a holy God? You know, the health of every church can be directly tied to the hands of the men in that church. If there are men with dirty hands, it's probably a dirty church. And if all the men in our church were to stand right now and lift up their hands in worship, what would God see today? Would he see hands used to lust after women? Would you see hands that are just clicking away, wasting the day of entertainment? Would you see hands clenched at anger at another brother or sister? Or would he see holy hands? Hands used to serve Jesus' church, to build ministries, to wipe away the tears of a child. Hands worn down, preparing and delivering a meal to another brother or sister. Hands sweating as they help someone move. Hands used to turn the page of God's word. You see, God wants men in the church whose hands are calloused and sweaty and tired from serving him. Hands that look like Jesus's. And men, if you were to look at your hands right now and say, you have no idea what I've done with these, even in the last week, there's good news for you. King Jesus offers you his hands that were pierced by a nail so you could be cleansed forever. You see, that's the gospel, the great exchange, that your dirtiness is made white as snow 
by the perfection of Jesus Christ. You see, becoming a man is not just being prayerful. It's not just being pure. It's coming to Jesus and saying, God, I can't do these things. Will you do it for me? And he says, yes, follow me. And here's my spirit to get you along the way. And men, those of you who follow Jesus and have given your life away to Jesus, he's calling you to live in light of that with your hands. Use them for good. Thirdly, men who are peaceable. Men who are pure, prayerful, and peaceable. Paul ends this section on biblical manhood by saying, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Men should be without anger and without quarreling. You know, men tend to have a tendency to lose their temper. And Paul is emphasizing men should be known for the peaceability. You should be known for how you get along with other people. And what's happening in this Ephesian church is there were a lot of smart men who were arguing over theology and they couldn't get along. And that's a threat for our church. You know, we have a ton of really smart men in our church. We have men who graduated from MIT, Ivy Leagues, write scholarly papers, doctors, nurses, lawyers, influential, influential people. All that means nothing to God if we can't get along. God is calling men to genuinely enjoy one another and to enjoy the sisters in our church. And if you are not peaceable, if you're not easy to be around, then you're not fulfilling your call as a man. In fact, peaceability is of such value to God. In 1 Peter 3, 7, Peter says that husbands should treat their wives with honor so that their prayers will not be hindered. And the emphasis in this text and in that text, 1 Peter 3, is that if men are not peaceable with their wives, with their sisters in Christ, with the people in the church, God says, shut down those prayers. I don't want to hear it. Get along with other people before you pray to me. So, men, are you easy to be around? You may be smart, you may be strong, but are you gentle? Are you honoring? Are you kind? This stuff matters to God. The household of God needs men who are prayerful, pure, and peaceable. Men, God wants purity in us and peace around us. And it's with these kind of men in mind that Paul then will eventually move to the roles of women in the church. And the reason he, Paul is starting with men is because it's a whole lot easier for the women to fulfill their God-given role if it's men who are acting like this. Men who lead like Jesus. Men who go away to pray regularly. Men who are using their hands to sacrifice for the needs of others. Men who are at peace with brothers and sisters. You know, I, I meet a lot of women who are egalitarian, meaning they, they, they reject the traditional gender roles given in the scriptures. And almost every single woman I meet that has that viewpoint has a story of an oppressive man or a cowardly man or a weak man who does not look anything like this man. It, following men would be a lot easier if men acted like this. And weak Cowardly, poor men is the reason, the main reason why there's so many suffering women and children in our world right now. You know, I, I spent, just to close the loop on this, I spent a couple days last week on a retreat with about 20 church planners in the Mid-Atlantic. These are some of those, the best pastors, best church planners in our region. These are godly, good men, good fathers, good husbands, good pastors. And we were just having a time of sharing our struggles, just being honest with one another. And every single man in that room 
was sharing about a deep inner struggle that they were currently dealing with as a pastor or as a husband or as a man that was tied to a father wound. My dad never gave me attention, so I feel like I need to earn these people's attention. My dad said I was never good enough, so I feel like I need to be good enough. My dad was an alcoholic, so I'm afraid of people who are mad at me. You see, most of the men in this room, the deepest issues you got are related to your dad. And every, by the, at the retreat, every man in that room who is there, who is being used by God, who is a good man today, has a story of another man in the church who stepped up, filled the void that their dad left, and discipled them, cared for them, and was an example to them. And that's the reason that these men are here serving Jesus today. Here's my point. My point is, this list is so simple, yet so few do it. And you can quite literally change the world, man, if you will just be this kind of man and stay in one place for a while. Just be this kind of man. Look at Jesus and say, God, I want to do what you are like. I want to be like you, and I'm going to stay there and then find other hurting men and then pour into them and watch how God uses you. And you will change the world. Now let's get to the woman. Godly women. Godly women practice modesty and ministry. According to Paul. Paul's going to say here, women don't follow Beyonce, follow the Bible. You don't need to follow Queen Bee. You can follow King Jesus. And what he's going to say is that true beauty is spiritual. True beauty is, involves modesty. Now, when we get to these verses, and this next verse is particularly difficult, we need to, again, remember the principle of history, that there's a difference between what is cultural and temporary with what is eternal and revelatory for all people at all time. So what here is cultural and changing, and what here is central and timeless? And the unchanging principles for us are modesty and ministry. Modesty and ministry for every woman. Let's start with number one. Every woman in the church is called to practice modesty. Look at verse 9. Likewise, meaning in the same way, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Okay, so what is cultural here is the braided hair. What is cultural here is the gold jewelry and the pearls. In the city of Ephesus, a city full of wealth and sexual immorality, it was common for women in the first century to wear the ancient versions of Gucci and Louis Vuitton. They would, in fact, wear their hair straight up, braided, filled with jewels and gold, to show off their wealth and to show off to men. And these practices, this immodesty, not just wealth immodesty, but promiscuity, is trickling into the Ephesian church, and that's what Paul is addressing. So the issue here, the heart issue, is modesty. And we know this is a timeless principle because we see it in another text in 1 Peter 3. The same point is made. And the point is not that women should remain out of style, but that their hair is not their source of beauty. A woman's outer adornments are in fact just a distraction from her true inward beauty. Paul and Peter are not saying that women can't get their hair did. They're saying be modest. So what's the dress code here at RCC? It's modesty. Because that's the Bible's dress code. 
and it has nothing to do with the particular hairstyle or jewelry you do or do not wear. This will look different in Uganda and in Japan and in Baltimore, depending where you're at. The unchanging principle is modesty. Now, modesty for us, I believe, does not mean skirts down to your ankles and shirts up to your forehead. Modesty simply means that you're not a distraction. And this is a call for men, too. Men need to be modest. No one wants to see your nipples at church, men. But women in particular, because men are such visual creatures, need to love their brothers by helping them battle against lust. Now, the reason Paul is addressing this is because in corporate worship, the women's clothing had become a distraction. It was taking the men's attention away from God and onto these women. Now, two overcorrections I need to address when it comes to this point. First overcorrection. I've often heard women say that it's not my responsibility to prevent men from lusting after me. It's not my responsibility to prevent men from lusting after me. And you know what? You're absolutely right. It is not your responsibility at all. That is his issue and his sin to repent of. And I think statements like that, especially in, in church circles, are pushback against the past 30 or so years of purity culture that has often overdone it. I think the church in the past 30 or so years has tended to treat women as sex objects for their husbands. There's almost this subtle idea that every woman is a threat to every Christian man everywhere. And if you're a woman and you smile at a man, that's assumed that you're propositioning him. No, I'm just smiling. Women are often made to feel ashamed of their God-given bodies. When God gave you that body and called it good. I know, I know for a fact, I've talked to Christian women who are about to go swimming at a swimming pool with other Christian men and they agonize over what they're going to wear. They feel guilty. They feel awkward. They feel ashamed. They don't know what to do. And sisters, can I just encourage you that you don't need to stress. That is not the heart of this text here. If a man lusts after you, that is his issue. That is his sin. And God does not desire in any way to rid you with guilt and awkwardness and shame so you don't know how to live. Jesus came to this earth and died, gave his very body and blood so that you would have no more guilt, have no more shame, have no more fear, have no more awkwardness. So Jesus frees you from that oppression of like, oh my gosh, what do I do? What do I wear? I just want to encourage you, the heart of this is just do your best to love God and love neighbor with a clear conscience. That's it. Take the focus off you and onto him. Now, second overcorrection, it is also wrong to say how you dress does not matter at all. And as an American woman, you have the right to wear whatever the heck you want to wear. But more importantly, as a woman of God, which is your primary identity, you are called to follow Jesus, who gave up his preferences to serve the needs of others. And as a woman, you are called to follow likewise, say, I'm not thinking primarily what I want to wear, I want to think what's best for my brothers. 
And if my friend is struggling with drunkenness and has an alcoholic father, I'm not going to say, hey, you want to take shots? That's pretty stupid. If I have a friend who just had a miscarriage, I'm not going to bring my pregnant wife around and say, whoa, look at her. Oh, this is amazing. That's stupid. And sisters, in the same way, if your brother is fighting tooth and nail against lust, would you love him by dressing modestly around him? Men do not need any help to lust. They are experts at it. And the way some women dress in the church and in the world is at best a distraction from honoring God and at worst an attempt to seduce men into sin. And if you're a woman who craves the attention of men and you're purposely showing off your body to get it, you need to destroy that idol. It's unloving to your brothers. And you're looking for the wrong source. Because Jesus gives you all the attention and affection and affirmation you would ever need that no man will ever be able to give you. And the main reason Paul is saying women should be outwardly modest is because this is not the source of their beauty. I mean, women, you are told from three years old on from many people in many places that your beauty is found in your looks or your confidence or in the way you walk or your abilities or your intellect or your personality. And while these things are beautiful, they are not the source of your beauty. God is most beautiful. And the more you reflect Him, the more beautiful you are. And what Paul is saying is that true beauty is holiness. What is truly beautiful is self-control. What is truly beautiful is that only which God sees. It's not about being worshipped yourself. It's about worshipping God. So sisters in Christ, when they wake up in the morning and decide what they're going to wear, they should not be asking, what makes me look the most attractive? That is the wrong motivation. If that is what you're asking, there is something wrong in your heart. You are seeking affection and affirmation in a place you will never find it. Rather, the question you should ask every morning is, what can I wear that best loves my brothers and demonstrates a humble heart devoted to the worship of God? Now, is there a place for enticing clothes? Absolutely. That's for another sermon, though. It's called the Song of Solomon. And it's between husband and wife behind closed doors when the kids are in bed. God is not saying you can never dress like Nicki Minaj. Just don't do it at the church welcome table. Just do it at home. <laughs> All right, women practice modesty. Second point, next thing he says is women should devote themselves to ministry. Don't adorn yourself outwardly. Adorn yourself inwardly with ministry. Verse 10, but what with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. God says a good woman doesn't out adorn herself outwardly to garner attention. She adorns herself inwardly to give her life away to good works. And again, this is a big problem in the Ephesian church. In chapter 5, we get a little background of why Paul is addressing this. Because there were widows in the church who were good examples, and there were widows in this church who were bad examples. And Paul is going to give the categories in chapter 5 of 1 Timothy of the women the widows that the church should support financially and the widows that the church should not support financially. And here's the good example. He says, the type of widows to take care of are women who give themselves up for good works. Verse 10 of chapter 5. They have a reputation for good works. 
She has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. And then in the counterexample, verse 11, he says, Refuse to enroll the younger widows who are, bad example, idlers going from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So the image here is of negative images of women going from house to house, gossiping, slandering, tearing things down, not doing anything productive. Paul says, do not follow their example. Rather, follow the widow's example and support those widows who give their life away to do good ministry. And here's some good news for you, women, that if you look in the mirror today and you don't think you measure up to culture's standard of beauty, if you believe perhaps that nature has made you plain, grace makes you beautiful. God is looking, and men should be looking, at your character and your actions. That's what makes you beautiful. And even if you perhaps do meet culture's standard of beauty, you should not be giving your attention to maintaining that beauty through tanning beds or plastic surgery or caking on makeup. Because true beauty is found in the way you love and serve other people. You see, what is beautiful to Jesus is a woman like Mary of Bethany who poured a year's salary worth of perfume onto the feet of Jesus as a means of worship to Jesus. And what does Jesus say to her? He says, she has done a beautiful thing. A beautiful thing. Beauty looks like Judea and Syntyche, who Paul called his partners in the gospel. Women who were his partners in the gospel. Beauty looks like Priscilla, who with her husband Aquila, brought this young preacher named Apollos into their home and taught him correct theology. Beauty looks like Phoebe, who was a servant or a deacon in the early church. Beauty looks like the Proverbs 31 woman, who woke up before dawn at like 4 a.m., was an entrepreneur, was a mom, a wife, who, a hard worker, she's a woman who opened her hands to the poor, a woman who laughed at calamity and was kind and wise to all, of whom the text says, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And here's my point. If you give your life to modesty and to ministry, ladies, this is a special act of worship to God that is unique to Him. In 1 Peter 3, God says that this kind of woman who is outwardly modest and adored inwardly with good works is of great worth in God's sight. Another translation says it's very precious to him. And I just want you to get this image with me for a second. Just imagine the creator of the universe sitting on his throne, looking at everything he has made, and he looks at a woman who is outwardly modest and given her life to build ministries and to deliver food and to clean uh, other people's houses just because she wants to be kind and she welcomes the outcast and loves the poor and she's just a good woman. God looks at her and says, she is so precious to me. She is so beautiful to me. And men, help your sisters here. Is what you're applauding and complimenting and celebrating a woman's godliness or her body? Is what you're looking for in a wife what Jay-Z calls valuable or what God calls precious and valuable? And as we close, I'm, I'm just so thankful that we have so many men and women who 
exemplify these characteristics, who have been changed by Jesus and live in light of the gospel. Men who are pure, prayerful, and peaceable. Women who practice modesty in ministry. I, I really think that our church is like a modeling agency of godly women. And some of you men need to wise up and marry some of them. And I just pray that the household of God here will continue to create more and more men and women who look like Jesus. Will you pray with me? Thank you for your word, Lord. And we pray for next week as we dive into how men and women work together. But as we pray now, Lord, I just want to pray for the men for a moment. Men, if you're here in this room right now and you're a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you to do what the text says and to lift up your holy hands right now in prayer unto God. And Lord, we recognize as our hands are lifted, men, that these hands are holy not because of our own work, but because our hands have been replaced by the nail-pierced hands of Jesus Christ, who purchased our very bodies by being nailed to the tree absorbing the wrath of God so we can be given the righteousness of Christ. God, we thank you that you have cleansed not just our hands, but our whole bodies. And Lord, as men, we ask, make us like Christ. Make us men who are of purity, who do not see women as objects for our pleasure, but sisters that we get to serve. Make us men of prayer who are weak, who can admit our faults, who say, we need Jesus. Make us peaceable, God, where we can get along with one another and love one another and serve one another. So much of the health of this church and the health of this city is tied to the hands of the men whose hands are lifted now. Make us holy, God. And use us to do mighty works. And Lord, as we continue holding our hands up in prayer, we pray for our sisters who are here now. God, help us to tell them how valuable they are to us. May we create a church culture that says these sisters are worth eternal value to us. Not for a service they render, but for the image of God they portray. God, may we create a church atmosphere and culture and a, and a culture in our homes and in our workplaces that helps women feel safe. That helps women feel valued that allows women to feel free. And that, Lord, I pray for our sisters that they would not feel the need to earn attention through any man's eyes. Rather, they would find rest knowing that you welcome them into your eternal family. May our sisters be adorned more and more in good works, build ministries, change lives through the ministry of our sisters. And God, would you create a beautiful church of men and women who reflect the beauty of Jesus like only you can do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. To find other messages or get more information about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thank you for listening to the Redemption City Church Podcast.